Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. It is, it is hard to feel indifferent about John Calvin. You mention Calvin in a mixed crowd, and you will have some people who will defend this man to the death. And then you have other people willing to execute that sentence. <laughs> you either love John Calvin or you really hate John Calvin. There are very few people who just like or maybe dislike John Calvin. This is because John Calvin was a man with a clear worldview. He was confident, clear sighted in what he believed, he was non ambiguous. He was willing to admit mystery when there was mystery, but the way he looked at God and life and the world and the scriptures, politics, everything, himself and others, there was a clarity there so that if you see what he sees, you love him because he puts it forward so clearly. But if you don't see it, you hate him. Really, Calvin's view of the world and of life began with a majestic sight of God in the scriptures. God as he really is, not as some figment of our imagination or some creature that we make in our own image, some idol, but rather God as he presents himself in the scriptures. That's where Calvin began. And when he was drawn out of the Roman Catholic Church and he came to the scriptures and saw the majestic portrait of God in the scriptures, at even a very young age, He gained such a clear vision of God and his unsurpassed holiness and greatness that not only did he gain a clear view of who God was, but from that came streams and clear streams of how do we think of mankind, therefore, and how do we think about politics, and how do we think about life, and how do we think about the events of life and relationships in city life, as we'll see, and everything else. Because he had a clear view of God in the scriptures, he had a certainty about other areas of life. Some would say, at times, too much certainty, perhaps. But he had a clear, certain view about life, and that's what's so compelling about him to some and so distasteful to others. It's really these streams flowing from this high view of God that led to this book we just gave away, which must be listed among maybe the five most important theological works of all time, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Amazingly, Calvin in his lifetime expanded that book, you saw the size of it, from nothing but a pamphlet in 1536 to, by the time 1559 came around, he had expanded it to four volumes, 80 chapters, massive covering all of systematic theology. The amazing thing is I say he he expanded it. He did not revise it because there's nothing in that original pamphlet through all the editions during his lifetime that he contradicted later on, nothing. He merely added to and rearranged. He had a clear view even from an early age. It reminds one of John MacArthur in our own day, very similar if you listen to his early preaching. Martin Luther and God's wisdom 
had come in and slammed down the gates of hell, but in God's good wisdom, it took a John Calvin to come upon the rubble and to set a frame for what the church would be from here on out. What does the church look like as Protestant? He sets an orderly frame because he's an orderly man in the way that he thinks. Now, much in the way that Martin Luther's life was tied to a place, Wittenberg, John Calvin's life is tied to a place, and that place is called Geneva, an independent Swiss city. And so we're going to organize our talk on John Calvin today around that one place. So we're going to first consider John Calvin's life before Geneva, which was really preparation, then his life in Geneva the first time, which lasts a short time. He gets kicked out, and then we'll see his life when he returns back to Geneva and stays there afterward. And our goal, and this would be Calvin's goal for us, is not to think Calvin is a superhero. He is not a superhero. Calvin is a man like you or I, like you or me, but he trusted in a majestic God, and God proved his majesty and his providence in his life. So, before Geneva... John Calvin was, like Paul, as one untimely born. He was born 25 years after Martin Luther. So, when the Reformation is beginning to take place, the Reformation proper in Germany, the nailing of the theses and so forth, you can think of Calvin as just a 10-year-old boy in France, unaware of what's happening. When the most important years of the Reformation in Germany are taking place, and even the Reformation in Zurich, another Swiss city, John Calvin is an ardently Catholic teenager during those years. He's born in Noyon, France. Calvin's father, and you see this theme in the Reformers' law, his father was a lawyer. And he was a lawyer for the cathedral chapter. That means he was a lawyer who worked for the Roman Catholic Church. Therefore, his father wanted his son John Calvin to serve the Roman Catholic Church, not as a lawyer at first, but he wanted his son to become a priest. So, from a young age, Calvin's life was set for him. This wasn't a choice he made. He was going to study to become a priest. Interestingly, as a side note, before he goes off to university, his, his preparatory school, what we would consider elementary school, takes place in Noyon with a patrician or an upper-class family. This is important in hindsight in that it, it really shaped John Calvin. He had a sort of propriety about him. Sometimes it went too far, but he had a propriety and a, a properness about him that came from these early years, it seems. So, age of 14, he goes off to university, and he goes to the University of Paris, one of the most prestigious universities in the world, but also a very hardened, traditional Roman Catholic university. Humanism is expanding, as we've talked about, but here at the University of Paris, humanism has minimal effect. There's more interest in the schoolmen, that is, what does the Roman Catholic Church teach about the Bible than there is in the original sources or in the Bible, which the humanists are starting to emphasize. 
Nevertheless, I just want to observe, and Calvin, I think, would approve of this, since he so heavily emphasized God's provident control of all things. Calvin didn't know this at the time, but when we look back, you can trace God's handiwork. Even with Calvin in this very staunchly Catholic university. Number one, as he's studying, before he goes on to study theology at the university, he has to study the arts, kind of like we do in a liberal arts degree today. So he has to learn Latin, or at least perfect it. And it just so happens that one of the greatest French teachers in the world is at the University of Paris. This teacher had been teaching higher levels of Latin, but he realized his students were coming without enough knowledge to master what he was trying to teach them. So he lowered himself down to a lower class of Latin, just in time, it seems, for Calvin to learn from this teacher. Calvin learned beautiful, elegant Latin. To us, seems not so important. But the Institutes is going to be written in Latin first. The most important works that Calvin will leave us, and that's really his legacy, his writing, even more than all the other reformers, are going to be written in a forceful, a powerful, an incredibly elegant Latin. In fact, there's one older classical scholar whose life is in the Latin, who when he read read Calvin said, this doesn't seem like a theologian can write this beautiful of Latin. But Calvin could because God had guided him there. We follow God's providence further. When he's studying the arts at the University of Paris, that means he's studying the classics. If he's learning Latin, that means he's studying the Roman classics. So he's going back to some of the sources, not the scriptures yet. And this is where God really moves in his heart a love for the classics. Before Calvin ever had a love for scripture, he loved the classic Roman writers, Horace and Livy and so forth. And that's what he was studying. And that's what he was personally interested in. But you remember, it didn't matter what he was personally interested in. He was being governed by the will of another, God, but in this case, his own earthly father. And his father wanted him to study theology, to be a priest. So, he finishes his classic study, his arts degree, arts study, and he moves to theology. This is when he moves from what he really loves to study and learn about into scholastic, minute, boring, if we may put it that frankly, theology. That's what was being taught at the University of Paris. It's not about the Bible. Or who God really is. It's about what does the church teach about God, about the sacraments, and so forth. And so, he's learning theology. And then, his father's will abruptly changes. His father, it seems, back in Noyon, had a falling out with the church. And so, he decides, I don't really want my son to be a priest after all. Too much politics in this. I want him instead to go into law, just like I have, because law raises your station, you make some money, might as well go into law. So, he tells Calvin, who has at this point been studying for many years, change of course, you're going to study law. Calvin, as was typical of him all his life, very dutifully submits himself to his father He leaves the University of Paris and he travels first to Orleans, Orléans, then to Bourges, 
to other cities in France to study law. And you just have to, again, mark God's providence in what's happening. And I think it's instructive that we take from this. Here is Calvin's father, who as a father has desires for his son, which are not spiritual desires. These are less than ideal desires for his son. That's what's guiding Calvin's education his whole life up to this point. His father wants him to get rich and famous. That's it. And yet, see how God uses it. Very instructive if anyone here has to submit, and we, most all of us do, to authority that is less than perfect. God uses that. You can trust him. That's what happens with Calvin. So he's been in the very center, the very heart of Roman Catholicism. And so he knows, as he's going to see later on, just what errors there are in the church because he studied it as hard as anyone else. He knows the Latin language beautifully because of the teacher that he had. He's familiar now with the classics. He's starting to see probably the importance of sources, going back to the original. And just as he gains all of this, he's pulled away to these other universities to study law. He doesn't know this, but one day he's going to help, help, he's not going to run it, but he's going to help run a city. He needs to know law well. Calvin masters law as he studies. Beyond that, Orléans and Bourges, these are not bastions of Roman Catholicism in its traditional form. These are more open-minded places. So here he begins to encounter the Reformation. He's hearing the Reformation, not just in a negative light like he would have at the University of Paris, but he's really encountering what the arguments are that are being made. While he's mastering law, with all his free time, he learns Greek, because why not? Two very important skills that he'll use later. And yet again, this is not to be John Calvin's permanent course, because his father's will changes again. Rather, it goes away, because in 1531, his father died. So here's Calvin. He's now free of his father's will. So he decides he's going to do what he really loves, which is not law. He moves to Paris and becomes a freelance writer and student of the classics. This is what he loves. He wants to make his way very much like Erasmus, who had also gone to the University of Paris. Erasmus was renowned as a classical scholar, could travel anywhere and have welcome. He had fame. He had money through patronage, and that's what Calvin wanted. That's what he always wanted with his life. But 1531, his father dies. He moves to, back to Paris. Around that time, we're talking either just before or just after, we're not sure, the most important event in his life takes place. And I'll let him describe it to you in his own words. He says, to this pursuit, that is to law, I endeavored faithfully to apply myself in obedience to the will of my Father. But God, by the secret guidance of his providence, at length gave a different direction to my course. And first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery to be easily extricated, (laughs) pulled out, from so profound an abyss of mire... God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. 
though I was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life, very confident by temperament, having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, I yet pursued them with less ardor. Around 1531, this classical scholar, student, and student of law is captivated by Christ. He's taken over. And now his mind is subdued. And from here on out, God has purposes how he's going to use it. Now, at this point, Calvin's education and preparation is almost complete. There's really only one subject he has yet to study in the school of Christ. And that is the subject of suffering. But he was enrolled in this class in 1533. (laughs) Yes. Uh, That's the class of life. 1533, because in that year, he's in Paris. Everything's going well. His friend Nicholas Kopp, who is the rector of the University of Paris, gives an address that is a little bit, a lot bit, too reformed for the University of Paris. Nicholas Kopp is driven out of Paris, but it seems that Calvin helped him write the address. So Calvin is now driven out of Paris and out of his beloved France. Calvin does not have the easy scholar's life he had sought. Instead, he's now on the run because of his faith in Christ. So now his education is about complete. He's just shy of 30 years of age. His earthly father's will is no longer in the picture, but we see that his heavenly father's will is guiding every step. So this is before Geneva. Now we come to Geneva itself. Now Calvin had, as you see, begun to live under the cross, begun the way of suffering, but there was more to learn, as there is for all of us. He was still holding out hope that he could go somewhere, find an easy, peaceful location, and there spend his life in writing. That's what he wanted to do, quietly. So for about three years after he leaves Paris, he wanders around Europe, learns Hebrew, studies the church fathers more in depth, publishes a very small tract on the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Supper and a few miscellaneous things, just six brief chapters, which will one day develop into what we know as the Institutes of the Christian Religion. So he's doing some religious work, but as he himself said in hindsight, the summit of my wishes was the enjoyment of literary ease with something of a free and honorable station. He wants to be Erasmus. He wants to be at peace and to write, to be well thought of, and to have money. So, in 1536, he had actually made a trip back into France, and he was leaving. And he had decided he would go to Strasbourg, which was a a major reformed city under Martin Bucer. And there he could find ease and peace. It was reformed. And there he could write and spend his days in literary ease. The problem is, in the mystery of God's providence, France is at war with Spain and the direct route to Strasbourg is blocked by this war. So Calvin can't go straight there, so he has to make a long detour which takes him through a city in Switzerland 
called Geneva. There he stops for one night, one night. The next day he continues and goes to Strasbourg. That's the plan. That's not God's plan. Because when he gets to Geneva, it turns out Geneva as a city, an independent Swiss city, had just broken from the Roman Catholic Church. There was a fiery French reformer named Will Farrell, if you'd believe that. Guillaume Farrell, but we say William Farrell. William Farrell was this fiery Frenchman who'd come in and somewhat single-handedly torn the city out of the clutches of the Roman Catholic Church. But as is the case with fiery Frenchmen, they're not that great at building up. They're better at tearing down. So when he learns that this young writer, this brilliant young student, this writer of the Reformation, he published this tract that was important in France. When he learns he's in his city, he says, I need this man in this city to help build on the ruins of what I've destroyed. So William Farrell goes to where Calvin is staying and tells him, you need to stay here and help really reform this city. Farrell starts out very nice and Calvin refuses him. Calvin says, I'm not a man of action. I'm not political. I just want to write in peace. I'm shy. I'm quiet. This is not going to work out. I'm not the man for you. Geneva was a rather boisterous city. It take a lot of work. And so after hearing all of these excuses, Farrell decides to just speak his mind, which he does often. And he says to Calvin, you are simply following your own wishes and I declare in the name of Almighty God that if you refuse to take part in the Lord's work in this church, God will curse the quiet life that you want for your studies. You should try that when you're trying to convince someone. <laughs> well, at, at at least worked for Calvin and Calvin says in hindsight, I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course. So he doesn't go to Strasbourg, he stays in Geneva, and the rest is history. Now, to understand what happens in Geneva, you have to try to get this into your mind. It's different from today. Today we have a very clear, in our country, separation of church and state. It's not absolute, but we try to separate the entities in many ways, which is good. We should do that. It was not that way in the 16th century. We've seen that with the reformers. Church and state were one thing. So today, we can understand having someone who is a Muslim and a Christian and a Jew and we all live together. That's good. In one country or in one city or in one town. But in the 16th century, that didn't really fly. You would have not just an individual who's a Christian, you would have this city is a Christian or this nation is Christian or this nation is Muslim. So it's more on a larger communal scale. That was just the way life was in the 16th century in Europe. And so, looking at Geneva as a city, it had been Catholic for a long time. And so, Catholicism was forced on all the inhabitants. You were Catholic. Well, now through the work of Farrell and others, it was Protestant. It was not Catholic. And so, there was no sense, well, now the city will just proceed as a secular city and we'll just have Protestant Christians within it. no. If you're not Catholic, the only other option to their mind is you're Protestant. So really, Geneva becomes one of a few experimental cities. It's one thing to preach justification by faith alone, but what does that actually look like, say, in the civil life of a city? Like, how do we actually do that in real life in 16th century Europe? Geneva was an attempt to answer that question. 
to apply Protestant principles and truths to the running of a city. You have to keep that in mind. Now, a good summary of Calvin's time in Geneva is given by T.H.L. Parker. He has a good biography on Calvin. Parker says, The prospect of work in Geneva was uncongenial. Didn't look very good. Release, when it came for a few years, most welcome. The return, torture. The reformer's first stay in Geneva lasted only a year or so. 1536 to 1538, and Calvin said of his first short stay in the city this. He's writing to Farrell, I believe. Might have been to someone else. He says, I think you would hardly believe me were I to relate to you even a very small part of those annoyances, nay, miseries, which we had to endure for a whole year. This I can truly testify that not a day passed in which I did not long for death ten times over. People would fire guns outside of his door just to bother him. People would name their dog Calvin just to kick the dog and get back at this foreigner trying to tell them what to do. But he said, but as for leaving that church to remove elsewhere, such a thought never came to my mind. So then, if such a thought never came to his mind, why did he leave Geneva after just a year's time or so? The answer is, he got kicked out of Geneva. They didn't want him there anymore. There's a misconception that Calvin was running the city. That is very far from true. He was its leading pastor. But he actually wasn't even a voting citizen of the city until five years before his death. He was a Frenchman. This is a Swiss city. So he's a foreigner. He had a lot of influence, a lot of sway. He helped as people were making laws. But there were times where he was unpopular. He had very little influence. And then he'd be popular and he would have more. Calvin was not running the city. He was just helping as the councils, and there was one major council and others, were running the city. And the councils eventually decided they didn't want Calvin in their city anymore. The main issue with Calvin and Farrell, they both get kicked out after about a year, is twofold. One, people don't like their gospel. If you're going to have a whole city, imagine you get the whole city of Evansville and you force them all to come to church. You're going to have some problems. That's what they had. People don't like the gospel. The other thing is Calvin and Farrell were neither of them very tactful. They both had an anger problem, Farrell more than Calvin probably, but they weren't very tactful. They're inexperienced and Calvin somewhat humbly after the fact, they get kicked out and he says to Farrell, We may indeed acknowledge before God and his people that it is in some measure owing to our own unskillfulness, indolence, negligence, and error that the church committed to our care has fallen into a sad state of collapse. That being said, Calvin was not too heartbroken. He did not want to be in Geneva in the first place. So they kicked him out and he said goodbye He went first to Basel, another Swiss city, and finally he made it to Strasbourg, where he had originally intended to go. Strasbourg was a nice, peaceful, moderately peaceful place, an established reformed city. There were not all the troubles of Geneva. He did become a pastor of French immigrants that were in Strasbourg, so he was serving as a pastor. But finally, he was freed up for literary ease. This seemed like too good to be true. And it's really his few years, three years he spends in Strasbourg, where he writes 
some of his most important works because he finally has the time to do it. People aren't shooting guns outside his window. So there he expands the institutes. He writes a commentary on Romans, writes an important letter to a cardinal, writes on the Lord's Supper. He's just really enjoying himself. And if that weren't enough, while he's in Strasbourg for these three years, he meets a young woman. Her name is Idelette de Burr. She actually was married to someone in his congregation that he had helped win to the Reformation. But that man had died, so she was left a widow with two children. Calvin had sent his friends off, said, you know what, I'm past 30, I haven't really thought about a wife, I should get married. In his very matter-of-fact, non-romantic way, he just sends off his friends to just find somebody. He says, I don't really care that she be all that beautiful necessarily. I'm not interested in that. I just want someone who's going to be chaste and modest and she needs to be good for my health. So they went off looking. I don't know that they were successful, but he eventually found Idolette de Burr and they married. They would never have any surviving children of their own, but he would help to raise her too. Probably did keep him alive a little bit longer. The joys of Strasbourg, however, as most joys in Calvin's life, were just temporary. Three years later, his heavenly father's will led him in a different direction. So we've seen before Geneva, we've seen his first time in Geneva. Now we come to the final season, which is back in Geneva. Well, back in Geneva, there was chaos. Calvin, as much as the people did not like him because he enforced a rule upon them, did by that rule bring some order to the city. When his opponents succeeded in getting him and Pharaoh kicked out of the city, they succeeded a little too much. And so the city's thrown into a lack of discipline, a sort of a chaos. It's a bit of an embarrassment to Protestantism. The Catholic Church actually sends a letter, tries to win it back, saying, see, this is what happens when you leave. Amazingly, they say, we're not coming back, but they don't know how to be reformed. They need help, and so finally they swallow their pride. And three years after the council kicks Calvin out, the council asks Calvin, please come back. Please help us. (laughs) Calvin's first reaction is not surprising. He writes to Pharaoh, I would submit to death a hundred times rather than to that cross on which I had daily to suffer a thousand deaths. In Strasbourg, they wanted him there. You know, that's nice as a pastor to be wanted there, not to be the name of everyone's dog that's getting kicked. That's what Geneva was. Yet, Calvin was more experienced in the way of the cross now. He had a motto, sort of catchphrase for his life in Latin, which translated read, My heart I offer you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. And those were not empty words for Calvin. If he believed God wanted him there where he suffered a thousand deaths, he would go there. So for about two days, as his friends are insisting, you've got to go back. This is embarrassing Protestantism. You've got to go back and fix the city. For two days, Calvin says he was beside himself. He was distraught as he wrestled with the Lord. I don't want to go back. I love Strasbourg. I hate Geneva. He wrestles for two days Then he takes his heart and he offers it to the Lord promptly and sincerely. He packs his bags and his wife and they make their way back to Geneva. He enters the city September the 13th, 1541. 
His fears were largely realized. There was a political party that formed just to oppose him. It was called the Libertines. They wanted freedom from this French fanatical pastor who comes in here with all these rules. And they would be the thorn in his side for most of his time in Geneva, fighting against him. But just as Paul's thorn, when we are weak, then we are strong. So Calvin, in a state of weakness, begins to work again in Geneva. Now, one amazing story that I think just highlights his whole time here. When he was in Geneva at first, Calvin was preaching verse by verse through the Psalms during the week, I believe. And he had been cut off because they kick him out. When he returned to the city, he went up to his pulpit again to preach. And certainly the people are expecting a talking to from this pastor. Kicked me out, here I am, see? He looked down at, well, he actually didn't bring notes. But he actually continued exactly on the verse where he left off three years before and just kept preaching through the Psalms. This was Calvin's primary strategy. How do you reform a city? Yes, he knew law. He was involved in those details. But his main strategy was the people have to know the scriptures. There's no way to deeply reform a city just by changing structures. They have to be changed by the scriptures just like he was. So he had a sort of two-prong approach. The people need to know the individual verses and what they mean. So he would preach through these. Every day of the week, he would preach on off weeks. He would preach through the scriptures. And then he would put together, based on his preaching, commentaries that were clear, lucid, simple, everything opposite what he'd learned in the University of Paris because he wanted the common person to understand the scriptures. Well, then you know when you're reading any one passage, there are bigger questions that aren't found in just one verse. So to deal with those, to help people have a key to understand how the Bible is, is structured, he continued expanding the institutes. That was his twofold approach. You have the institutes, then you have his preaching and his commentaries. Because people need to know the scriptures. You can see his love of the scriptures also in that he tried the best he could to follow them in structuring the order of the church. He believed in four offices in the church. We believe in two, but he saw four pastors, doctors, more of the intellectual, like in a university. Then you had deacons, and you also had elders. Biblically, pastors and elders are interchangeable. And doctors, I think the teaching office is included with elder. There's obviously room for people teaching in universities. But anyways, those were the four offices. And they were working, mind you, not in a church, in a city. And these offices were structured to take care of everyone in the city. That's what some people didn't like. They would keep an eye out for anyone in the city, mistreating their wife, drinking a little too much, any problems, and then they would recommend discipline or try to correct that. So four offices. Calvin, in fact, fighting against a misconception, the idea of Calvin as this autocratic ruler in Geneva telling everyone what to do, is not true. In fact, Calvin was surprising in his age for how much he argued for a separation of church and state. He wanted the church to have the responsibility of excommunicating members, not the council's. That was another point of contention. But he saw it important that the church be independent of the government in those decisions so it doesn't just become political. Speaking of misconceptions, we do have to, at this point, 
talk about Calvin himself as a person, because he is so hated by so many, there is a lot of slander cast upon his name. He's often viewed as this gray, lifeless, dull, predestinarian grouch who sees the world as a big machine and is not interested in children or flowers or anything like that. Well, let's just dispel all of that. Number one, when Calvin was looking for a house in Geneva, besides a good study, do you know what his primary interest was in the house? Flowers. Really. He wanted a good garden, or we'll call it a yard. He wanted to make sure there's a good yard. He wants nature there, okay? Secondly, Calvin did most of his work his whole life, especially after marriage, with children crying in the home. He had his wife, Idlet, her two children raised, and he worked at home. But he also had his brother live with him. He had four children by one wife, and then he had a, a second wife and had four children after she had sadly left him. And so there were young children in the home throughout Calvin's career. He's not in an ivory tower writing the Institutes. When you're reading the Institutes, he's writing that with children crying in the background. We don't know if maybe they had to protect the children from Calvin and Calvin from the children, possibly, but you know, when he lost the one young son that Italette did have through their union, child died in infancy, and Calvin talks about how this affected him because his mind is weaker than most, has a softness beyond most. He was a soft and a sensitive man in many ways, but he was confident and certain in the word of God. In fact, whereas Luther, as he got into later age, he really hardened and became crusty and unpleasant and alienated people who would have been his friends, actually John Calvin went just the opposite direction. As time progressed, he worked very hard for unity. This is not how people think of Calvin. He wanted unity as long as it did not cost truth. Did Calvin ever meet Martin Luther? No. But they greeted each other in letters because Calvin would often write to Melanchthon, Luther's right-hand man. He would say, greet, greet Luther. Melanchthon would say, Luther greets you. So there's this kind of peripheral involvement. There was one time when Calvin actually wrote a letter to Martin Luther and it never got to him. See, what had happened is by the time, because Calvin was born so much later, by the time Luther got around to Calvin, when a friendship could have formed, it was basically barred off. Because when Luther thought about Swiss reformers, who did he think about? Zwingli. And he did not like Zwingli because Zwingli did not believe the Lord's bodily presence was in the supper. Zwingli was too much a humanist, too much of this human reasoning. He didn't like Zwingli or his successor Heinrich Bullinger in Zurich, another Swiss city. So by the time that a friendship might have formed with Calvin, who had a view of the Lord's Supper in some ways that would have been more similar in some ways to Luther, certainly than, than uh, Zwingli's would have been, it was too late because Luther saw things black and white. So he said, you're a Swiss reformer. He's not interested. So when Calvin sent this very kind, reverent, letter calling Luther my most reverent father, and he sends it to Luther, and Melanchthon just tucks it away, because he thinks, that's going to fire up Luther's temper. He's not a fan of these Swiss reformers. So, even when there was some hope 
a little later, that there might be a church-wide council, a coming together of all Protestants across Europe. There was a hope of this. Calvin was in favor of it, as were others. It was really the German reformers that shut it down. They were important. They needed to be there, and they wouldn't be, partly because this, uh, this predisposition against the Swiss reformers, but another part was actually, you remember Philip Melanchthon was an astrologist, and the stars told him if he sailed overseas, he would die. So he wasn't willing to travel to a council, just a strange thing. But anyways, this means that Calvin, though he sought unity, was never really able to unite the Swiss Reformation with the German, which is why you have Lutheran and Reformed as separate branches today. However, Calvin's efforts at unity were not wasted. He did manage to see unity, not with the Swiss and the Germans, but with the Swiss among themselves. In 1549, John Calvin and Zwingli's successor Heinrich Bullinger came together and wrote up a statement of faith concerning the Lord's Supper and other matters that all of the Swiss cities that were reformed signed on to. That meant at that time through Calvin's work, all of the Swiss cities were in a sense united that were Protestant. And this is the origin when we talk about capital R, we're all reformed in our view of salvation and scripture, but when we talk about a capital R reform, some people are capital R reformed, this is where that came from. And I forgot to mention last week, we talked about John Knox, he's the father of Presbyterianism. I can't believe I overlooked saying that. That's where Presbyterianism comes from the Scottish church, that was their, their form of church government and belief. So anyways, reform tradition comes here from the uniting of the Swiss. Now, as we come to the end of Calvin, there's one more misconception, point about his life, that you cannot talk about Calvin and overlook this, because those who hate Calvin, this is number one on the list. Anybody have an idea? Somebody say it? The burning of Michael Servetus. If you encounter someone who does not like John Calvin, maybe because they just don't like the idea of predestination, so we don't like Calvin, then they will point to the burning of Michael Servetus. Let me say just briefly on this point. Number one, they're right. Calvin should not have been involved in the burning of Michael Servetus. Servetus was a heretic who denied the Trinity. He had been captured by the Roman Catholics who were going to burn him. Somehow he escaped, went to Geneva, publicly challenged Calvin's authority. He was a brilliant and strange little man. And so Servetus is in Geneva and Calvin does not burn him. That's a misconception. Calvin doesn't have the authority to do that. The council decides it will burn him for heresy. But Calvin's involved in advising the council and Calvin thinks it's right to put him to death. Again, the church and state, when they're married together, this is why we don't do that anymore. If they're married together, if somebody's not going with the church, then they're a problem to the state and you kill them. That's a problem. So, heresy. If Michael Servetus was anywhere in Europe, he'd be burned by anybody, by a Catholic, by a Protestant. In fact, they wrote letters to the Protestant reformers said, what should we do with Servetus? And they all said he needs to die. That's unfortunately the mindset. It was wrong. It was the mindset. And so Calvin went along with that. I will say in Calvin's defense, we admit that was wrong. And in his defense, 
he was probably the only one who would do this, he argued, let's not burn him. That's a cruel and unusual punishment. Wouldn't use that terminology. Let's not burn him. Let's kill him in a more merciful way. He wasn't in charge. The council did not listen to him and Servetus was burned. So important to say. You kind of have to understand his context. We don't excuse him, but it makes sense in the context. Servetus is burned, 1553, the month before he's burned. Finally, the libertines, his chief political opponents, go too far. The council basically ruins the party. They're exiled or killed. And from that point in 1553, really two years later, two years later, 55, until his death, May 27, 1564, about a decade, is the decade in which Calvin really did have most control over the city. And he was able somewhat peacefully to help the Reformation continue there. So if John Calvin were with us, how would he want us to conclude this discussion of his life? We could point to his writings, which are one of the pillars of all Reformed theology, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, one of the most important books of all time, especially of all theological writings. His commentaries are probably the only commentaries that old that are still regularly used by lay people today. I don't know that there's any other as old as his because they were so clear. I point to those things, but Calvin would not. Calvin was fixed upon the majesty of God and God's work. Calvin would say, who was the one who governed all affairs through my education to make sure I knew what I needed to know to do what I needed to do? And who was the one who, by the enforcement of his power, allowed me in Geneva to overthrow my opponents or at least to endure them so that the word of God might prosper? And who was the one who brought about any success in my life? It was not, he would say, me, John Calvin. It was his heavenly father through Jesus Christ, his son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this, your servant, John Calvin. I thank you for his example of what to do and not to do. I thank you for your word to guide us and be our final standard in all things I thank you for his devotion to you and to your greatness. And I pray that we would be confident and not waver when it comes to your truth, though in other matters that we would be humble and gentle and tender. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.